What I want to tell you tonight is something quite important, actually, and that is for some reason, God talks more about money management than any other single topic in the Bible. Some 2,000 verses, Kathy and I had the privilege of studying under Larry Burkett and Judy Burkett many years ago. Larry's passed away now, of course, but we have, uh, we did with uh, Howard and Beverly Dayton as well, and we just appreciate very much people who have studied these things out. And I am thankful that God has blessed us with the opportunity to study as well. So believe it or not, we're going to look at a text tonight that lets us know that everyone who leaves this earth alive at the time of the second coming will have gone through a period of time, according to the Bible, when they cannot buy or sell. So what I'm going to talk to you about, are you thankful that God's told us that ahead of time? If it just came on you all of a sudden, what in the world would you do? That's the big deal. So we're preparing for the last big temptation. And I'm going to give you a few of the Bible texts that I have in mind. Matthew 6, 19 and 20, to 19 to 21 actually, is kind of interesting because this is part of Jesus' famous mountainside sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, if you understand this amazing thing, this is right in the middle because it's chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. And right in the middle of it, Jesus talks about the importance of our treasures. So it says, Do not store up treasures on this earth where moss and rust corrupts and thieves break in and steal. So big question, why does God tell us not to store up treasures on this earth? The right answer is because it's not safe here. Isn't it true? It's not safe here. It's not because it's so wrong, it's just plain stupid. But then he says, do store up treasures in heaven. Doesn't he? Where moth doesn't rust and thieves don't break in and steal, it's safe there. So how do you store up treasures in heaven? Kathy and I, we, we shop at Sun, or not shop, we bank at SunTrust Banks. It just happens that was the bank we used in Maryland, their original banks. When we come to Strawberry Plains, Tennessee, believe it or not, they have a SunTrust bank there. So all we have to do is change our address and we're all set. But anyway, when we go there, they have a little drive-through where if you want to deposit a check, you can put it in this little vacuum tube and press the button and it shoots over the top into the tellers on the inside. Does God have one of those vacuum tubes somewhere? You just shoot the money to heaven? No, the answer is absolutely not. So how do we get money stored up in heaven? You're going to find out tonight, and it's a pretty interesting story. I will tell you ahead of time, there's two ways to do it. Help other people and help advance the cause of God, and that stores up treasures in heaven. You'll be able to see that. But how could the Bible's author and editor justify devoting twice as many verses to money than to faith and prayer combined? How could Jesus say more about money than both heaven and hell? Didn't he really know what was important? So a large volume of scripture teaching on the subject of money demands our attention. Why does God give us all this instruction on money and possessions, what's the big point? With so much to be said, so much he could tell us that we really needed to know, why did Jesus, the Savior of the world, spend a full 15% of all of his recorded words on this one subject? There must be some reason. I think I found the answer. Why did Jesus say more about how we're to view and handle money and possessions about any single thing? And the enigma deepens when we look how closely Jesus linked money to salvation. So I'm going to close with that as well, but I want you to see this interesting story. What do we know about Zacchaeus? Well, we know that he was a chief tax collector. Was he a poor guy? No, he was quite rich. He was short of stature. He wanted to see Jesus. Now, please understand what I'm talking about here. I put see in quotation marks. Early in Jesus' ministry, there was a leper along the side of the road where Jesus and the disciples were traveling. And one of the guys hollered out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. 
And the disciples said, Jesus, do not touch this guy. The guy had said, if you just touch me, I would be healed and could be clean. Wouldn't that be the yearning of your heart if you were a leper? Now you understand this is incredible because, because of the stigma of leprosy in those days, the disciples told Jesus, let us tell you, if you touch that guy, your ministry is history. It'll get back to the Pharisees and you're going to be unclean. Nothing's going to happen from here on. But Jesus parted through the disciples and he reached out and said, I will. And he touched him and he was healed instantly. It's incredible. There was another time Jesus was traveling to the home of his friend Lazarus who had already died. And I believe this may have been the, when he was going to Jairus' daughter. But anyway, I think that's what the situation was. Big crowds were around him and he was headed that way. And some lady said, I don't want to have him touch me. I just want to touch his clothes. You remember that? She did and she was healed. Jesus stopped and, you know, asked about it and so on. The disciples said, you know, people are bumping you everywhere. What do you mean? Who touched me? What did Zacchaeus want? I just want to see him. So you have to understand that Zacchaeus worked for the IRS. He was either a CPA or an attorney who dressed in business clothes like I have on. He goes into his office and looks in the Wall Street Journal and realizes with his local paper that Jesus is coming to Jericho, his hometown. So he sets this little, little uh, clock in the window, be back at 2 o'clock, and locks the door and heads off in his suit to see Jesus. What did he encounter? Does everybody understand that there were no places in Palestine big enough to hold the crowds that came to see Jesus? That's why he preached on the mountainside and from a ship and all of that. The most amazing thing is that when he went to the main street of his town, it was packed up, just packed with people, kind of like... Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena when the Rose Parade has come. People spend the night there ahead of time, you know, that kind of thing. But he said, please give way, I'm a short man. Besides, he was somebody and he was dressed up in a suit. And they said to him, you should have thought about that yesterday. We're not giving you our place. So what did he do? He ran ahead. He's a grown man, not a little kid in shorts and tennis shoes, but he's a grown man in his suit and he climbs up in a tree because he just wanted to see Jesus. The amazing thing about the Bible and about Jesus, when you want to see Jesus, he wants to see you too. And this is an incredible experience because a series of miracles happen. But Jesus walked right underneath the tree, and uh, I'm going to put this up here so you can see it. He planned to pass through. He came to Zacchaeus. He looked up, and he called Zacchaeus by name, though they had never met. You like that idea? Do you think he knows your name? This is incredible. And this is kind of interesting because... Jesus did something that I would never have done, I don't think. He said, come down, I'm going to your place for lunch. He invited himself home for dinner. Isn't that incredible? Now, I'm going to tell you something interesting. Many of you know my wife, Kathy. She is an excellent cook. Whenever I called her this morning and she invited, since she had to stay at church with the children's program and so on, she invited three of the single ladies of our church home for dinner. She was setting the table ahead of time because she had planned this. She had already made the food and everything, all planned ahead. So I don't just call up Kathy and say, hey, I'm bringing somebody home. You know, that doesn't happen at our house. It just doesn't happen because she likes to entertain, but she doesn't like surprises. Do you guys understand that? So Zacchaeus sends word to his wife, we're entertaining Jesus for lunch. But remember, when you get Jesus, you get 12 hungry men who don't have regular meals, and they're coming as well. So 13 guys are coming home for lunch. It's a big deal. But Zacchaeus was a... Rich man, not a big problem for him necessarily, but something incredible happened. When they got there, Zacchaeus, of course, hurried down when Jesus had said, I'm coming to your place. He joyfully received Jesus. Other people actually criticized Jesus for eating with a sinner. But Zacchaeus' attitude toward money changed because, listen carefully, with one encounter with Jesus, his whole attitude toward money changed. 
Very interesting, isn't it? He says, half of what I have I'll give to the poor, and four times I will restore what I've taken from other people. What was Jesus' response to Zacchaeus? He didn't say, well, that would be a wonderful idea. What he actually said was, today salvation has come to your house. I don't think there's anything that would make me happier for Jesus to come to my place and say, salvation has come to your house. That's what he said to Zacchaeus. So Jesus judged the reality of this man's salvation based on his willingness, actually his cheerful eagerness to part with his money for the glory of God and the good of others. We're looking at Luke, the 19th chapter, where the story of Zacchaeus is. Now here's the story. The Bible tells us what the last and most trying temptation of Satan will be and how to prepare for it. Here is the great and last trial God's faithful people will encounter. No one can buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast. Now listen carefully to this great tragedy or great problem that comes. This is incredible to think about. If you receive the mark of the beast, you can buy and sell, but you lose your eternal life. Does anybody sign up for the mark of the beast? But if you don't receive the mark of the beast, then you can't buy or sell. So I mean, it's kind of a... You understand a catch-22 situation unless you love Jesus. And when you love Jesus, you're not going to receive the mark of the beast. No way, they say. Very interesting. So this is where it's plainly telling us ahead of time. You plan on going to heaven, you're not going to be able to buy or sell ahead of time. We're told in Last Day Events, page 148, in the last great conflict with the, in the controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. Because they refuse to break his law and obedience to earthly powers, they will be forbidden to buy or sell. Now, most of us have smartphones. I keep mine in my briefcase with it off when I'm speaking. I hope it's off. It should be. Anyway, I have instructions for nobody who knows me to call me during this meeting. So does everybody have their cell phone off? Interesting thing is, what if you turned it on and said, no service? Everywhere you went, no service. Your cell phone's cut off. Your internet's cut off. Your electricity's cut off. Your water's cut off. Do you understand? Then you go to the grocery store, you go on Wednesday because Kroger says senior day that day, get 5% off, they won't even take your check. Is that what's going to happen? So I'm going to tell you something else. I've been teaching money management for many years, and I tell people, if you plan to retire, there's three prerequisites to planning to retire. First, to be debt-free, including your home mortgage, being totally out of debt. The second one is to have health insurance, reasonable health insurance, and then also to have a reasonable income stream of some kind. Now, I actually practice what I preach. So I have all my ducks in a row. I have all those things. Does everybody understand that? What if I couldn't buy or sell? All my hard work for 45 years of ministry, gone, unless I'm trusting in God. Do you understand? So I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. Satan says, for fear of wanting food and clothing, they will join with the world in transgressing God's law. The earth will be wholly under my dominion. Now listen carefully to what's happening. The United States is in the process of restoring full diplomatic relations with the country of Cuba. Is this true? What they want to know down there is when are we going to lift the economic embargo? Because that's the kind of thing that really puts pressure on people. You can't buy or sell from us. Do you get the idea? So not being able to provide for yourself and your family will be a fate almost worse than death. How can a person or a family prepare for this time? The answer is a real simple one, and it's a three-point thing. I'm going to go through them all together. We can prepare for that time by eliminating the things that weaken our elements, that weaken our faith in God. And here they are. The three greatest hindrances to financial faithfulness are debt bondage, treasures stored up on the earth, and financial unfaithfulness to God. So we're going to look at debt bondage first. 
Look at this idea. If I am in debt when I can't buy or sell, what can I do to protect my home, my car, other assets, and my own good name? By the way, Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. You will never be free until you are debt-free. Does everybody understand that? American way is to borrow everything, but we want to be free, don't we? Debt-free is important as well. So are you serious about being faithful to God at the end, being among those who will stick with him and be protected from the plagues and be part of the group that is translated to heaven? If that's the case, it would be wise to make a plan to get out of debt. Everybody understand ASAP? As soon as possible. By the way, the financial economy, somebody asked me a question about the financial collapse in September. People have called me for months about this kind of thing. Generally, the people that are promoting that are trying to sell you something precious metals or their newsletter or something like that. Do you understand? The whole economy is hanging by a thread. What is that? Some guys stored, Damocles stored or whatever. You know, who knows when the string's going to break. The real interesting part about it, the government is, is held together by a band-aid right now. And by, by the way, I believe also by the angels in Revelation 7 holding back the winds of strife. That's what I believe. Because we still have some work to do in this world, don't we? I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that God has blessed our people with enough funds to finish the work? He has indeed, and there's more where that came from. So what we're going to do is talk about getting out of debt and so on. I would encourage you to do that. And there's, in my, both of my books on money management, It's Your Money, Isn't It, and Faith and Finance, there's whole chapters in each one of them about how to get out of debt. It's, it's incredible that people can still be in debt. Okay, we're going to look at the second one, Treasure Stored Up on Earth. Now, this is the opposite side of the coin of, of uh, Zacchaeus, because when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he asked what we must do to gain eternal life. Jesus did not sell, tell him, go and sell all you have first. What did he say? Keep the commandments. And Jesus, the, the, the rich young ruler asked him, which ones? And so Jesus started quoting some of the Ten Commandments, and he said, you can stop right now, because I've been doing that since I was a little kid. Was he true and honest about that? Yes. The big question is, he didn't feel comfortable about it, though, so he said, what do I lack yet? So Jesus said to him, go and sell what you have and can distribute to the poor, then come and follow me. Now, this is amazing. I've heard good preachers preach sermons about the idea that the call to the rich young ruler, come and follow me, were the exact same words of the 12 disciples. He could have been one of Jesus' inner circle, but he turned it down because he was so stuck to this earth. Incredible. So I'm going to show you something amazing. Assume for just a moment that inside this room, from that wall to this room, that wall over there is all the 6,000 years of Earth's history. You don't think it's millions and millions of years old, do you? And then there's going to be a seventh millennium over there when the saints of God are in heaven. So of all of time and all of eternity, and then beyond that goes eternity with no end. If you're smart, would you concentrate more on the dot or the line? The dot is Earth. That's dot-com, you understand? It's just a period. But from there on goes eternity with no end. If you're smart, you think about the line, no question. So what did the rich young ruler do? He traded the whole of eternity for the dot, living on this earth. Can you imagine that? That was plain stupid, and he knew it. And when he went away, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that he went away sorrowful, weeping, because he knew he had just traded this earth for eternity. Incredible. So I'm going to tell you something interesting right now. I told you earlier today that I was a young pastor. I made the commitment to God, you have my permission to do whatever it takes to save me. 
And I believe it, I still do. Because I know whatever I may go through in this earth when I get to heaven, and I am planning to go because I have made a decision to do it. That I will say heaven is cheap enough. The real interesting part about all of this is that in this particular case, I'm going to look at a couple of statements. The heavenly treasure was assured to him if he would follow Christ, just that part underlined the very holiness of God was offered to the young ruler. And I'm going to tell you something interesting. Jesus knew the young man was sincere in his assertion that he had kept all these things from his youth, but what he wanted was his heart, a humble and contrite heart. Jesus made the only terms which could place the ruler where he could perfect a Christian character. His words were words of wisdom, though they appeared to be severe and exacting, and accepting obeying them was the ruler's only hope of salvation. So I believe that God is not asking everybody here to sell all your stuff, contribute to the poor, and become an itinerant preacher. Live in the back of your car. Do you understand what I'm talking about? But I'm telling you one thing. If money is your God, you better do it if you want to go to the kingdom. Do you understand? But he's asking. He's blessed us so that we can advance the cause of God. It's pretty simple. So what I want to tell you about this afternoon is how to get away from those kind of things. The ruler was quick to discern all that Christ's words involved, and he became very sad. Notice the part I've underlined. He wanted the heavenly treasure, but he wanted also the temporal advantages that his riches would bring him. He was sorry that such conditions existed. He desired eternal life, but he was not willing to make the sacrifice. The cost of eternal life seemed too great. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this is interesting. Desire of Ages 523. When Christ's followers give back to the Lord his own, they are accumulating treasure which will be given to them when they hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Does everybody get the impact of this? It's very, very interesting. Do you guys understand that God does not need the money? Psalm 50, God says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world is mine and everything in it. The real amazing thing is God says, You give it to me, I'll store it up for you, and you'll get it when you hear the words, Well done. And it's at a tremendous rate of interest. So do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. By, I'm going to tell you, have any of you seen the, the movie Schindler's List? At the end of the movie, what does he say? I could, have done, I could have gotten one more person. One more person. So I look at my stuff. And I'm going to tell you that I'm practicing what I preach. Kathy and I bought some property here in the mountains in Tennessee many years ago and has increased in value tremendously. This fall, we've had it surveyed into four tracks, and we're going to put it on the market in December because mountain land sells better in the winter when people can see under the trees and all. Because we're practicing what we preach. We don't want to be stuck with that land when Jesus comes back. Do you understand? We want to put the money into the cause. It's just pretty simple. I want you to understand that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because God doesn't welcome rich people, but because they're tied to their stuff a lot of times. So I want to show you something interesting. Many of you have looked at some of the books that I've written, and uh, I'm kind of an unusual author in that I underline stuff, and I bold stuff, and italic stuff all through my writings, and mainly because I want you guys to know what the good stuff is. When I was in law school, I remembered that you get a big civil procedure casebook and you read like 40 pages in some case, all fine print, no pictures, no cartoons, nothing. And in those pages, you have to find one sentence where the whole case turns. Was there intent? You know, that, whatever it might have been. The real interesting part about all of this is I wanted people to find what the good stuff was. Some things in my books are so important that I have it bolded, underlined, and italics all in one sentence. But you're never going to find anything bolded or underlined in Ellen White's writings, ever. Not all nine volumes of the Testimonies, all five volumes of the Conflict Series, no underlining, no bolding, ever. 
but she does occasionally use italics. And when she does, that means it's pretty important. Here's one of those. She says in Council on Stewardship, page 209, all this accumulation of cares and burdens is born in direct violation of the injunction of Christ who said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. They forget that he also said, lay up, what's the next two words? They're italicized in your, her writings, for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's not for God's benefit. Whose benefit is it for? Your own benefit. That in so doing, they're working for their own interest. The treasure laid up in heaven is safe. No thief can approach, nor moth corrupt it. So, those who desire to be rich and fall into many temptations and a snare to many foolish and harmful lusts, that which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. Now, I'm going to tell you guys something. Fair warning. When the leaves start to change, you know that... How many of you like fall? I love fall. It seems to be the shortest period of time, though. You know, it's not... Winter seems to be longer than fall for some reason. I'm not sure why. But at any rate, you guys know that fall... Have you noticed the days are getting shorter, too? Have you ever heard of get-rich-quick schemes? Get-rich-quick schemes are ideas to make it big, told to you typically by their, your friends who sincerely believe they're doing you a favor. But when the whole thing goes south, then the whole thing, you know, it's a big mess. At any rate, the get-rich-quick schemes come into the Adventist church in the winter. So beware. I'm telling you ahead of time. So when, what time does sunset in the winter sometimes, like in December 21? About 5 o'clock in the evening? Unless you have shift work somewhere, frequently you would not go to bed at 5 o'clock, right? So one of your friends will tell you at Vespers, why don't you guys come over to our place? We'll have some popcorn and pizza and something, and we're going to tell you about this wonderful opportunity to make a lot of money. The Bible says that we should shun those kinds of things, the get-rich-quick schemes. In my books, I have the four things, you know, promise of great wealth and so on, those kind of things, something you don't really understand, you know, on and on and on. The point, the point is, avoid get-rich-quick schemes. The Bible actually says that they drown men in harmful lusts. Okay, we're going to go on here. This is an illustration of something very amazing. And this picture, the man with the white beard, is pictured to be Abraham. And he's talking to a man who's contemplating, and that is his nephew, Lot. Do you think God can do whatever he says he can do? You've got to believe that, my dear friends. You have to believe that. So when God called Abraham in the 12th chapter of Genesis, he says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless you. So in the 13th chapter, Abraham was rich and he had livestock and cattle and herds and so on. Very wealthy. And his nephew Lot had been blessed as well. So they had a problem. They had been blessed so much they could no longer live close together because their shepherds were arguing about grazing rights and so on. So they had to separate. So Abraham comes to Lot one day and he says, I understand our shepherds are arguing. It's not good for brethren to argue, is it? Should that be in every bulletin in churches around the country? Don't argue with your brethren. You get the idea. Yeah. So the interesting thing, he says, we're going to have to separate. So this is the 13th chapter of Genesis. He says, if you go that way, then I'll go this way. Or if you go this way, then I'll go that way. Now, this is kind of interesting. What should Lot have said right then? Well, Abraham, you're the senior man here. You know, I'm just coming along with you. You choose, and I'll take the other one. But he didn't. What he said was, and the picture try to illustrates this, there's a beautiful valley over this way, and a river runs through it. I want to go over there. And one of the saddest verses in the King James Version of the Bible is in the 13th chapter of, of uh, Genesis, where it says, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. 
The amazing thing is the last chapter, the next chapter, he's living in Sodom. You remember? Amazing story. At any rate, never think that because you offer your family an easy life, it's going to benefit your family. That's what the story was. So one day, Abraham is in his tent. He is actually sitting in the door of his tent. I just love Bible stories. And I can just tell you that they, they pitch their tents like Bedouins with a, like one foot off the ground so that the desert warm air could come in and get cooled in the shade of his tent. And then it would have to go out the door. So he's sitting there in the air conditioning. That's the best he could do. And he's watching outside and he sees two men going by, or three men, and he waved to them and says, hey, come in, let me wash your feet and I'll give you a morsel of food. Did he know who it was? He had no clue who it was, but he was hospita had hospitality in his blood. So he invited him in. It turned out that it was God himself and two angels. By the way, they said later, I usually read this all through the Bible, but I'm trying to hurry through this, but I wanted just to tell you something amazing. He said, tell me about your family. That's what this picture is all about. You see the stars in the sky there? He said, well, it's just me and my wife, and you know, I'm 99, and my wife's 89. And, but God said, our kids are going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven. And God had not introduced himself yet, but he said, oh, really? How many kids do you have now? None. And they're past childbearing age. As an attorney, I tell you, when I took domestic relations, the oldest person that I'm aware of that's ever had a natural-born child in the United States is a 56-year-old lady living in New York. Now, this is amazing because they were 89 and 99, past childbearing age. The interesting thing about it, God said, about this time next year, your wife will have a baby boy. Can God do whatever he says he can do? Abraham and Sarah believed it after that. That was for sure. Now, the incredible thing about all of this is that when Lot, they were blessed, but when, the, when, the, when God and the two angels began to leave, if you've ever inquired about the investigative pre-advent judgment, think about this. God told Abraham, the real reason we came down here is because we have heard up in heaven that things are really bad in Sodom. We've come down to investigate, and if things are as bad as we've heard they are, this will be the last night on earth for Sodom. What do you think Abraham immediately thought about? Lot and his family. Those guys are down there. They probably got a branch Sabbath school going and 50 people come to church by now. Amazing story. Really, really incredible. So I'm going to cut the story short. And sh well, I have to tell you this one thing. Abraham bargained with Almighty God. Once he knew he was there and that it was God, he said, what if there were 50 righteous there? And God said, if there were 50 righteous, I wouldn't destroy it for the sake of the 50. So he began to be a little bold and said, what if the five less? I love this because the God did the math in his head and said, if there were 45, I wouldn't do it for their sake. Then he said, what if there were only 40? God said, for the sake of 40, I wouldn't do it. Now, this is amazing what happened next. Abraham became so bold, he started going by tens. What if there were 30? What if there were 20? What if there were 10? And God said, for the sake of 10, I would not destroy it. Abraham... God did not stop granting mercy until Abraham stopped asking. He could have saved it for one man, but he stopped at ten. You understand that God is merciful? Everybody understands that? Very, very important. Anyway, the angels went on ahead while God was talking with Lot, with Abraham, and they come to Sodom. And this is amazing because Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom, you know, somebody by this time. And he saw the angels coming. Did they look like angels? No way. But he said to them, come to my place and spend the night. Because back in those days, they didn't have cable, they didn't have CNN and all that stuff. If you wanted to learn about what's happening in the world, how did they find out from travelers? When they came in, you spend the night with us, tell us what it's like where you're from and what you've heard and all these things. So the two men had supper and were with Lot and his family. 
when all of a sudden on the outside, people started beating on the outside and said, send those men out to us that we may sodomize them. I use that word because that's where we get the word. The interesting thing is Lot went out on his porch to try to reason with them, and though he'd been there many years, they called him a foreigner. Get out of the way, you foreigner. We'll tear you from limb to limb. He tried to reason with them. I won't tell you what he offered them because of the children present, but the interesting, amazing thing is when they said they will tear you limb from limb, the angels opened the door and reached out a strong arm and brought him back in and smote everybody on the outside with blindness. I think that the angels grew to their normal height, maybe 10 feet, and he's in poor little eight-foot ceiling. They're bending over like that, and their big muscles are showing and so on. And he says, we're not here selling Malaluka or Fuller Brush. We have come here because God has sent us here to see what's going on here, and we have seen enough. This city will be destroyed tonight. So what does Lot think of immediately? His grown children. Don't think you can live for the devil all your life, and then when some emergency comes, you're going to start going to prayer meeting. That's not going to happen. And that's what happened in his poor case. He went out to his grown children. By the way, this is late at night when this happened because they'd already had their evening meal. They'd had discussion and the people came and had this whole episode. So Lot goes out to his grown children, knocks on the door. You think they're in bed? No, they're up watching David Letterman or something stupid. Do you understand? Dad, what are you doing up? This is way past your bedtime. Can you understand body language? Can you tell if I'm really scared? You can tell. And especially if you know somebody, you can tell. The interesting thing, they looked at him and said, what's wrong? Is mom okay? Then he said, there's two guys at our house, their angels sent from God, told them the whole experience. They said we could be saved if we left right now. What was their response? They laughed at him. They laughed at him. You've had too much pizza going home. Things are going to be great. So he went home and he told God, the kids won't leave. I'm not leaving either. We've got everything we've ever worked for us here. We just filled our swimming pool up for the summer. I mean, we can't leave this stuff. We just paid our house off. All this stuff, is, we just, well, there's no way we're going to leave. Do you know that Law and his wife argued with God's two angels all night about why they should not leave? Because the Bible says when the morning dawned, the angels took them by the hands and took them outside and levitated them right over the wall. The city gates weren't open yet, and the Bible says he set them down on the outside. Read about it. Quite a careful thing. And then we're told that God, who had stayed behind to talk to Abraham, your Bible says he said to them, not they said to him, flee for your life. Don't be around here when this stuff happens. It was the voice of God that said, do not look back. Do you understand that in the presence of two angels and Almighty God, somebody had not learned to trust God, and so they said, if we go to the mountain, some wild animal will get us. And besides, my back, I haven't slept on the ground since I was in Pathfinders. There's no way I'm going out to the mountains. This is incredible, you can understand. This is an amazing story. There's another little city called Zoar. They have a Holiday Inn Express. Let me go over there. So God allowed him to do that, but in the meantime, his wife turned back, and she became a pillar of salt, according to Genesis 19.26. Ellen White adds another word in Review and Herald, December 11. She, ret- she stood on the plane, a pillar of salt, forever. Pretty amazing. Why did she look back? because her heart was still in Sodom, her possessions, her stuff was still there, and her children were still there. Now, I'm going to tell you guys some really serious stuff right now. This is my last sermon, so you guys aren't going to throw eggs at me or anything. I'm just going to tell you this. Every person who leaves this earth alive will have some remnant of that in their life. 
You're going to have stuff in Greenville or Green County or wherever you're from. Your possessions, your wealth, your stuff will still be here. And most everybody will have somebody who's turned their back on God. So what you have to understand is that in one of the shortest verses in the Bible, Jesus said in Luke 17, 32, it's the whole verse, remember Lot's wife. So when you remember Lot's wife, it's not just an abstract recollection like, oh yeah, I remember that woman. Isn't she the one that turned into a pillar of salt or something? It's not that at all. When you remember in the biblical sense, you remember and you do something. God remembered Hannah, and she had a child that she named Samuel. You remember the Sabbath, and you don't say, oh yeah, today's Sabbath. You do what? You keep it holy. So when you remember Lot's wife, you remember, bottom line, no person or anything is worth trading for eternal life. I'm going to say it again. No person or anything is worth trading for eternal life. And that's the decision we have to make ahead of time because when the time comes, you, it's going to be difficult to make it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're going to go with the flow. So Lot entered Sodom, a wealthy man. He came out with nothing. Jacob left home with nothing and returned to wealthy man because God blessed him because of his faithfulness and tithing, as you know from Genesis, the 28th chapter. You know what Genesis 28 talks about? Two days running without stopping, the most he could. Jacob is having to flee home because his brother Esau is going to kill him. Do you think people have ever fought about money and inheritance since that day? It's regular, I can just tell you. The real interesting part is Jacob knelt down and prayed before he went to sleep. And he said, God, I want to see my homeland again. And please don't let my brother find me sleeping. Because his brother was an outdoorsman, could easily find him, as you pray, no. But he'd run as hard as he could for two days. And he stopped and put this big rock at his head so he could hide behind it. And he went to sleep. And then he dreamed a dream. That's when he saw the ladder extending from earth to heaven. Amazing story. Amazing story. And he saw the angels ascending and descending on it. And God said, I will bring you back. I will bless you. All the answers to his prayers. I'll be with you and go with you and so on. And when Jacob woke up in the morning, he said, this is the house of God. I didn't even know it. So we stood this big stone up as an obelisk and poured oil on the top and called it, everybody know? Beth El, which means house of God in Hebrew, which is very, very interesting because every time he ever passed that way, he always would stop and thank God for preserving his life. A very interesting situation indeed. Well, then it says in that same 28th chapter, all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So we're going to look at the last part here. The love of money, the desire for wealth is the golden chain that binds people to Satan. And Satan, that's steps to Christ, page 44. The work of God is to be more extensive, and as people follow his counsel, there will not be much means in their possession to be burned up or consumed in the final conflagration. All will have laid up their treasures where moth and rust cannot corrupt, and the heart will not have a cord to bind it to this earth. As many of you know, I work with Adventist World Radio, and I had a program on 3ABN that John Lomacang did an hour interview with me about all the awesome things that are happening with Adventist World Radio. The next Monday, this was like a Thursday night, one of the live programs, and the, and the next Monday, uh, a family called the General Conference and talked to one of the ladies, young women who works in Adventist World Radio, and said, I've got a guitar that I want to donate to the Adventist World Radio. And the young lady said, I don't think we take guitars. And she, he said, well, let me talk with Ed Reed. So she transferred the call to me. And he told me, he says, I've got this guitar. It's not a yard sale guitar. It's a real valuable guitar. And I wish I had put a picture of it in, in my slides to show you tonight. Very amazing. It was a 1935 Gibson Super 400 that was only 35 made in that year. Incredible guitar. And uh, so I went to see them. They lived up in Idaho. And I was speaking at Walla Walla for the North Pacific Union Workers Meeting. And so I took a day afternoon and went up to their home in Idaho. And they showed me this guitar. It had the... 
is all the metal on its gold plate. It's an archtop guitar. It's a great big 18-inch across because it was to be the lead guitar in a band. If any of you like country music, it's the same exact guitar that Mother Maybell Carter played on her program on the Grand Ole Opry, a big, huge guitar. At any rate, the, and it was in mint condition. It had the original leather cover, and it also had a canvas cover you could put in and zip up on top of that. And so I spent about $100 just building a case to ship it back to Washington. Then I took it from there down to Tennessee to George Grunes, Grunes guitar in Nashville, Tennessee, who's one of the world's experts on Gibson guitars. George's mouth dropped open and said, where did you get this? He says, if you leave with me, I'll get $16,500 for it. And I said, I think we can get more than that. And he says, would you do me a favor? And I said, sure, what would it be? I had loosened the strings because I read it on the internet that when you transport something like that, you want to loosen up the strings so it doesn't put pressure on the neck of the guitar and so on. So he said, could I just tune it up and play a song? So he tuned it up and played Wildwood Flower on it, which was Mabel Carter's, you know, theme song. And it was, tears were shimmering down his cheeks and he didn't want me to take the guitar away. Anyway, we got 20000 for it. But the reason I'm telling you this whole story is because the man said to me as I left, we've had this guitar for 50 years in our family, but we didn't want it to get burned up at the end. We wanted to put it in the cause of God. That was the big deal, you understand? That's the way I feel as well. When our treasures are stored up on this earth, the closer we are to death or the second coming, the more stress there's going to be in our hearts because we're going to be separated from our stuff. But when our treasures are stored up in heaven, the closer we come to the end of life and the second coming of Christ or Jesus, the more excited and eager we will become because such people look with great joy to the prospect of leaving this earth behind. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Well, I'm going to go on here to look at the last one. We're going to do this real quickly. Financial unfaithfulness to God. Now, what this means is something very interesting. Selfishness, materialism plays a big major part in the great controversy because we're told that the devil says, go make possessors of lands and uh, money drunk with the cares of this life and present before them the world in its most attractive light that they may lay up their treasure here and fix their affections upon earthly things. Do you think that the devil's been successful at this? Very, very much so, because I'm going to go on to the next part. For we know that every selfish, covetous person will fall under our power and will finally be separated from God's people. So I'm going to tell you that the significance of tithing is Leviticus 27.30. That's the tithing legislation in the scripture where it says, All the tithe of the land is the Lord's, it is holy unto the Lord. What, so who, do, who does the tithe belong to? The Lord. What could God do with his tithe if he wanted to? The, the, the answer is in the question anything he wanted to, right? He could take it all back to heaven if he wanted to, or he could say, well, just bring a little cauldron here, we pour some lighter fluid in it and burn the whole thing up, like they did the sacrifice. I bring my best lamb. What do we do with it? Kill it and burn it up. So could God do that with a tithe if he wanted to? Sure, but what did he say? Numbers 18:21. I have given all the tithes in Israel to the Levites in exchange for the work they do, the tabernacle of meeting. So it, the tithe supports the pastures. Pretty simple. If you want to write down 9th Testimonies 245 to 252, faithful stewardship, every question you could ever have about tithe is answered there. But now we're going to get into what we're talking about tonight. God established the tithing system to support the pastures, but there's another reason also to protect us from selfishness and to learn to trust, encourage us to trust God. So Deuteronomy 14, what is the book of Deuteronomy all about anyway? It's Moses repeating the commands and the provinces of God that they've done through the wilderness wandering since the exodus from Egypt, just before he died. So he says, Deuteronomy 14.22, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now what does it mean to fear the Lord? 
Most of you know that there's a thing called poetic parallelism in the scriptures. It's frequently in Psalms. But you see, here's one, Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how great is your goodness which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. So the fear of the Lord is trusting him. So I'm going to give you an illustration now. And I want to tell you something about me that you would have never guessed in your whole life. Here's the story. This is called The Impressive Dream. It's from Volume 2 of the Testimonies, 594. We're told that Ellen White had this vision where she said, while I was at Battle Creek in August of 1868, I dreamed of being with a large body of people. A portion of the assembly started out prepared to journey. We had heavily loaded wagons, and as we journeyed, the road seemed to get to do things, to ascend up and to get steeper and, and narrower as it went. So on one side of the road was a deep precipice. On the other side was a high, smooth white wall, like the hard finish of plastered rooms. As we journeyed on, the road grew narrower and steeper. This is what she saw. Now, this is incredible. I hope you can see that. This is actually a walk you can take in China. Uh, this is different than the, what Ellen White saw because where she saw, you're just walking around ledges and there's nothing to hold on to. Here there's a chain you can hold on, you can walk on the boards, but it's got the sheer wall on one side and of course the great big cliff on the other side. Very, very interesting. Now something interesting happened and that is in the story. Have any of you heard the story before? Okay, so most of you have, so I'm just gonna review it real quickly. The, narrow, the road became so narrow they could not have a team of horses, so they cut the wagon loose and they put the horses, you know, side by, not side by side, but one in front of the other one. They're traveling on the horses, and then it gets so narrow that they're afraid to ride the horses that they fall off. So they leave the horses behind, they leave their luggage behind, and they're going single file on foot until something interesting happens. A little cord is let down beside each person, and Ellen White says, for balance. Just a little cord can give you balance. Not, you're going to swing across anything on it, like a clothesline rope, you understand. So at any rate, as they walk along, what happens to the rope? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's not like a three-eighths or a half-inch or a three-quarter rope. It's like your whole body size. Very interesting. By the way, if the rope's that big, how many hands does it take to hold on to it? I'm showing you. Both hands. What else can you hold on to? Answer is nothing. Real interesting part about this. If I came to the end of that and my clothesline rope was interesting, here's what I'm going to tell you about myself. Believe it or not, through seminary and Loma Linda, I was tree trimming in Andrews University area and Loma Linda. A number of you are health professions. You've probably been to Loma Linda. I have personally been to the top of every palm tree in Loma Linda. And you probably wouldn't have ever guessed that in all of your life. But I've climbed every one of them and trimmed the dead fronds off of them. I had the city contract in Loma Linda for two years while I was there doing a master's in public health. Now, the reason I'm telling you that... I didn't use ropes like this in palm trees. I used spurs and a belt. But I can just tell you that when we worked in eucalyptus trees or oak trees or other trees, we would go up, put a rope across the top, and swing around in a saddle. Because as a student, you don't have room, money for a bucket truck or anything like that. You just, you know, with ropes. Now, I knew for sure that a half-inch rope would hold me up, but I always used three-quarter just to be sure. Because you cannot work when you're scared. Do you understand? Now, this is interesting what I'm going to show you here. This was actually taking down a tree in our yard up in Maryland. The interesting part about all of this, if you can trust your equipment, you're willing to do almost anything. This man worked like a monkey in the tree all day. And it's not derogatory. It's, it's praising him because he just was not scared at all because he had the rope. Very interesting. So what's the devil's last and most effective temptation to God's people? Financial embargo. You can't buy or sell. Has God made provision for this time? The answer is yes, by teaching us to trust him with our daily lives, he established the tithe. So listen, every time I tithe, my cord gets bigger and my trust in God is stronger and stronger. Do you understand? 
If I'm the kind of person that criticizes God's tithing plan or I criticize my church or the church this conference doesn't need the money, you know, they, they can get by and I need the money and God knows how poor we are, all that kind of stuff. You're never going to develop anything but a little clothesline rope. And when it comes time, you can't buy or sell. Who's going to swing across the chasm on a clothesline rope? Not me, not you either. Is that true or not? So what you have to understand is something quite amazing. When this time comes, notice this. God's plan on the tithing system is beautiful in its simplicity and quality. Great objects are accomplished by the system. The treasure will be full if we all adapt the system, and the contributors will not left the poor. Through every investment made there, we'll become more wedded to the cause of present truth. Your rope gets bigger and bigger. So I'm just plainly telling you some interesting things. Get out of debt. What's the second one? Don't store up treasures on this earth. Why? Because it's not safe here. And the last one is to be faithful with God in your finances. Pretty simple. Pretty simple stuff. It really makes sense. I've studied it out. I'm sorry we've gone a little bit late tonight, but I will thank you all for coming. And uh, I want to have a prayer for you. Somebody said they had the benediction. Who was that? Maybe it's me. Okay, good. But if you'll remain seated for just a minute, I want to tell you about the books I brought. And I want to thank God for each of you and ask God to keep us faithful. Shall we do that? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for telling us ahead of time what the future holds for us. And we're looking forward with faith and confidence for you for providing for our needs as you have in the past. We've learned to trust you with our money. We pray that you'll bless each of us. Help us to be faithful. Help us not to swear and waver away from this. We pray that you'll bless us. Give us your strength and courage. Many of us have made renewed decisions today, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will impress us to be faithful to you, to be more faithful in our daily devotions, our prayer life, our study life our concern for other people, being involved with our resources to advance your kingdom. We pray that you bless every family that's here represented, bless the churches, bless the conference leaders and those who have been involved in us, the program today, and be with me and Kathy as we continue our ministry as well. May your blessing be upon all of us, and may someday we be able to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. We'll ask you to make, make you ruler over many things. Dismiss us now with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.